Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast hosted by four veteran educators in which we apply lessons from running schools to all areas of life, from coaching to parenting. Today, our guest is Bob Nardo, the founding head of schools and executive director of the Libertas School of Memphis, one of the highest performing charter schools in Tennessee and a finalist for the YAS Prize, which rewards best-in-class education organizations from every sector. Bob's background is straight out of education reform central casting. He led operations for my organization, Kip, New Jersey. Then he became COO for the high-performing Noble Network of Schools in Chicago, and then again COO for Chris Barbick's Achievement School District in Tennessee. But Libertas is anything but your typical urban charter school. A few years ago, Bob called to tell me he was starting a school that would synthesize best practices from high-performing urban charter schools and Montessori schools. On its face, this makes no sense. These models could not be more different from each other, and the students and families they typically serve come from opposite ends of the American economic spectrum. But as you'll find in this interview, Bob cares little for conventional wisdom or orthodoxy and cares a whole lot about providing kids with an outstanding education. This goes for his students, and it also goes for his own kids, who are homeschooled by his wife, and we'll go into how that homeschooling experience led to the start of Libertas, a truly unique model of education in the heart of Memphis. All right, Bob, thanks for joining us. Professor Hill, it's truly a pleasure and an honor. Let's get into it talking about your school, the Libertas School, which you founded in Memphis, Tennessee. First of all, tell us how many students you have who they are, and give us a sense of the neighborhood in Memphis that you serve. Yeah, so Libertas is really unique in that we are both a neighborhood zoned enrollment public school and a charter school. Tennessee was one of the first states in the country to win the Race to the Top Act, and this is when I said my tearful goodbye to you before coming down here to work with Chris Barbic and other charter people from around the country who said it's time to put up or shut up. And if we're going to say we're offering a better option than the district, then we got to step up and fulfill the same challenge. And so I worked for the state for two years with Chris bringing other college prep charter schools into neighborhood schools to do turnaround, but I fell in love with this neighborhood, and that's when I left the state to work with a group of neighborhood folks to start Libertas. So we serve 500 children from basically six weeks old to fifth grade in a North Memphis community called Frazier, which is a historic community. It's Right now, it's a predominantly black community. And low income, you know, about 86% of our students are free reduced price lunch. But Fraser has really an amazing history. About 100 years ago, it was a big rail station right off of the river. It was kind of an important point for logistics in the Mid-South. And then after the yellow fever epidemic and so forth, a lot of people began moving up here. And it became the, one of the largest suburbs of Memphis. There's almost 50,000 people here. If it was a standalone city, it would be one of the top 10 cities in the state. And then after the end of legal housing segregation in Memphis, African-American families started moving up here because there were lots of great jobs. After World War II, you saw big factories open here, International Harvester, Tractor Company, Firestone Tire Company. There was great jobs in beautiful homes. And all of a sudden, now African-American families could afford to live here. But it was a bait and switch because they got here right as the jobs were leaving. It was cheaper to take those jobs overseas to countries with poor environmental and labor protections. So folks got up here, but the jobs were gone. And it went from being a destination middle-class suburb of Memphis to being one of its poorest neighborhoods. We have about a 65% child poverty rate in, in Frazier, for instance, compared to about 40% in Memphis overall. So Frazier has a really amazing history as a destination in Memphis, but it, it, for the last generation or two, it's been really challenging. When I came here in 2012, you know, shortly after the mortgage crisis, 
housing prices, there had been an annihilation of black wealth in Frazier. Average home prices were between twenty and $40,000. You couldn't even get mortgages to buy homes here because there was so little equity. Fortunately, over the last decade, a lot of great stuff has happened in Frazier. And Ryan, the reason that we wanted to open our school here was that despite the sort of statistics, and more to the point, when we came here, literally every single neighborhood public school in Frazier was considered a, quote, failing school, right? Every school in the neighborhood. But Frazier had this incredible civic spirit and a lot of great community and nonprofit organizations and churches that were dedicated to ex-offender reentry, housing rehabilitation, economic opportunity. And so those were the groups that were here. And the missing link was schools that would help families say, hey, I want to make this my home and keep my family here, rather than this is just a stopover community I'm going to live in until I can afford to move to a wealthier, you know, a nicer suburb. So those are the people that are on my board, those other neighborhood partner organizations. And, and that's what we've done at Libertas. So on your website, it says your school is a school for human flourishing, cultivating the minds, hands and hearts of children in Memphis for lives of wonder, work, and love. I know you well enough to know that each word in this mission statement was chosen with care. Beyond the like failure of schools in the neighborhood around you, why did you start Libertas? Well, Ryan, you know, working for you for years, I had seen the incredible environment of love and the tremendous level of achievement that kids, you know, you believed in our students at KIPP and showed people what they could achieve when you created an environment that was incredibly rigorous, but also profoundly loving, right? Like more than the math chants right? And the binder organization that you had at Team Academy, right? You had an atmosphere of tremendous love. And so that is the foundation, right? And, and so even though we're known as a, like Montessori school, where we're the first Montessori charter school in Tennessee, I always tell people that a village of attachment and loving relationships is actually the foundation of the school. And I really learned that from you. But the thing that I, I think I learned over the years is once my wife and I had our own children, and we started thinking about what kind of a school do we want our own kids to go to, as I reflected on what I loved about my own education. So not only was there my love of music and the arts and knowing how important that is for a lot of kids to be motivated in school, especially that was but watching my own children and watching the profound connection between the hand and the mind. That's what Maria Montessori says, right? We learn from the hand to the mind. And so learning and traveling around and visiting Montessori schools that were enabling children to do some really spectacular academic work by creating a multi-age, multi-sensory learning environment where children could advance at their own pace, right, and have a multi-sensory approach. So it really amazed me. And it was my wife who discovered this and tried it with our own kids. And I said, why is this only for kids like mine, right? This was not why Maria Montessori developed her model. She created it over 100 years ago, working with basically children with disabilities and orphans, you know, that no one else wanted to work with. And she shocked the world when she created schools that served them. And But unfortunately, because Montessori, because it's such a unique pedagogy that's pretty complicated to implement, just to be honest, it's not prevalent in public schools in the United States. And so it's become the province only of those of us who can afford to have it in the middle class. So we said, let's have a free public Montessori school right? That, that speaks to hearts, hands, and minds all together. And not to the exclusion of the achievement and rigor that we're looking for in a school turnaround situation, but expanding that vision, right? To say our kids can have the same kind of dreams and aspirations. So that's why we started the first Montessori charter school in the state here in Memphis. So before we get into the details of what that looks like, the most important question, of course, is how are the kids doing and how do you know? Well, when we started the turnaround here, there was less than 200 kids in the school. The school had a 24% suspension rate, 
and less than 4% reading proficiency. Now, something that I, over the course of my almost 10 years now as a neighborhood school leader, and again, Ryan, this is something that you started to teach me at the very beginning, even though we were a, you know, quote, open enrollment charter at Team Academy, you, I think, have the vision to understand that we have to see beyond sort of short-term competitive attitudes with the district, and we really have to see ourselves as our success can't be against our community, right? Our success has to be part of the uplift of our whole community, right? And, and so from the early days of when you created the CMO, right, and the vision you had for impact for Newark and for New Jersey and beyond, that was something that I really brought with me here. And so I say that to say, in no way am I blind to the underlying realities of what this community has experienced in terms of economic divestment and de facto and de jure segregation over the decades that have led to the inequitable and frankly, abysmal performance situation that was here, right? So it wasn't because people just didn't love kids, right? There were deep systemic factors, but, and that's part of what we've been trying to address through the school transformation efforts of sort of going beyond, you know, everything that you have to do in the school and the sort of community-wide approach and the policy work. With all that being said, yeah, I think it can't just be, oh, it's cute, they're doing Montessori, right? And so you know, we went in 2014 when we were approved here, Brookmead School was the second lowest achieving school in the state of Tennessee. By 2021, we were the highest performing charter school in Memphis. So Brookmead was a school that you took over. Yeah, right. Brookmead was the name of this school. And, you know, we've continued to operate it as a neighborhood school. But when we put the new curriculum and the new pedagogy and we kind of gave it a new name, Libertas, Latin for Liberty, right? The kind of freedom with responsibility, nod to my man Reed Hastings, that Montessori education is meant to bring. And so, and in 2021, we were the number one charter in, in Memphis. And over the last couple of years, our students have been in the top 15% of all schools in the state for achievement of economically disadvantaged students and students with disabilities. If you look up the critiques of Montessori schools online or, or just, you know, conventional wisdom about Montessori schools, you would not see, and honestly, even if you look up advertisements for Montessori schools, you would not see much about student achievement typically. They tout the model, they tout everything else. Is there anything you've had to do differently than the typical Montessori school, both to serve a community that is not normally served by Montessori schools or in pursuit of numerical, you know, data like what you just said, academic results? Yeah, so we very much see ourselves and are committed to being a fully implemented Montessori school. So this is not Montessori light. This is not Montessori inspired. Our classroom preparation and our teacher, and we can maybe talk about this, but our teacher preparation and formation is probably the most important thing we have done to get better every day for kids. So I'm sure we'll come back to that. We are a fully implemented Montessori school, and we are incredibly focused on alignment with state standards and expectations. So the way we talk about it, Ryan, is a roadmap. Our roadmap is Montessori-based and state standards aligned. It's, it's both of those fully. And it has to be, because you're right. A lot of, and again, I mean this with love, but there's plenty of people in the Montessori sector for whom they're not relying on school to make the difference in life for their kids, right? Like if you're an upper middle class person, like your kids are going to be fine and you can afford to take some risks with their kids. Our kids can't. Like in Fraser, they can't. I have a kid who not that long ago, their apartment was burned down when the older sister's boyfriend, you know, committed arson to get right. Like, you know, we have a family whose child is incarcerated, you know, because of a murder that took place in the house, right? Like real, like life and death issues that our kids are facing. Now, that also is people too often misunderstand communities like ours because of that. They don't remember that every parent here loves their child just as much as their middle class families do, right? They just happen to work 
overnight at a Nike distribution plant that has no paid leave and no benefits. So when we say, well, why don't you come up and meet with us at the school about your child's behavior? It's because otherwise I'd have to quit my job and I couldn't put food on the table, right? So we have to be incredibly intentional and really it takes two main forms. In terms of family and community in- engagement, there are a lot of mon- private Montessori schools around the country that say, if you're not with us from the point that you're three years old and have the full model, then the door is closed. You and I know some charter schools that do that. <laughs> you know, 100 kids in kindergarten and 10 kids in the graduating class, right? Like if you're doing that, and again, and this is something you set the tone on from the beginning when we started Newark Collegiate Academy as the high school, right? And throughout the time at team, I mean, sure, most of our kids come to us in our earlier grades, but if we're going to be part of the solution for the neighborhood, we have to be a school that can continue to meet kids. So that's something that we've done from the beginning. And a lot of Montessori schools would tell you no. But if you have a really successful culture, just like you saw this a team, the power of positive peer pressure, right? And well-organized classrooms, kids can integrate into that. Academically, we've made a number of adjustments too. The Montessori curriculum, properly implemented, is incredibly rigorous. Another myth about Montessori schools. Yeah, absolutely. Montessori is not some kind of a Waldorf thing. There is a very intentional and aligned scope and sequence of academic knowledge and skills that you progress through over years. And it's quite rigorous. And you know, we have kids in kindergarten doing first grade standards or even second grade in some cases in terms of reading and arithmetic and so forth. So it's actually quite rigorous when you implement it with fidelity, but there are some areas that, you know, the stuff that Maria Montessori came up with a hundred years ago, she didn't anticipate what was going to be on the state tests, right? So we have a team of veteran Montessori teachers who are really backward mapping and an understanding by design method, just like any good public school teacher in America, thinking about what is the authentic performance look like? What does the standard require? And how do we build extensions into the classroom? It's not fair to one of our kids to sit down at a state test and see it for the first time and have no idea what to expect, right? So we've built those crosswalks so they can be prepared to show what they know. So what does an average day look like? Choose a grade level and just tell me, if you're a student at Libertas, what do you experience throughout the day? Yeah. So, you know, the door opens at 735 and you come in and you immediately can go to work. Maybe you were building a long bead chain yesterday, which is a cute Montessori name for how you begin to learn times tables, right? And how you learn squaring and cubing, right? And and numerical relationships. Maybe you had that and it's a 25 foot long work and you were building it in the hallway and it's still there for you the next day because you could leave it out and, and pick up where you left off. So maybe you come right back and you spend maybe half an hour or 45 minutes because that's a big work. And then, and this could be in kindergarten, Ryan. There's a kindergarten outside my window right now doing this. And then when she's done, she makes some notes in her journal about what she did. Her teacher comes over at some point and checks on her progress, gives her any feedback or not. Afterwards, then just like you and I are going to have a period of intense concentration, followed by what Montessori called a period of consolidation that externally might not look like productive work, But interiorly, we know that the mind needs a moment to consolidate. So maybe she's going to go to the practical life area and prepare a snack. Or maybe she's going to wash some dishes or some laundry and hang it up to dry. Or maybe she'll go and water one of the class plants and wipe the leaves down so it can respirate and trim off the dead parts, right? And then she'll consult her work plan that her teacher made for her. Everyone has an individualized work plan every week. And so she knows, okay, I've mastered my CVC decoding, so now I'm working on some advanced code spelling. And we have a whole set of trays organized by shades of color so you know what's the next tray to work on, wherein I've got some different small objects or pictures. I'm doing the oral language work of the vocabulary. I'm then using the movable alphabet to spell those words out. And then I'm using the three-part card to check my own work. So if I made a mistake, I can fix it myself. And is this structured as... 
this is math time? Or is it, could that be a project from a different subject when they walk in the door that morning? Yes, you have a three-hour uninterrupted multidisciplinary work period where kids of three different years are together in the same room prepared with all of the curricular materials. This is like a 1,200 square foot room with maybe 24 students in it. And then maybe once she's done with that, then she saw on the board on her work plan that her teacher is going to call her for a lesson with some other students at that time on the grammar box. So we're doing some analysis of parts of speech, or maybe it's presenting the fundamental needs chart. So you understand how different human societies have diverse ways of meeting the same universal human needs. And then I'm going to work on a research project where I'm going to look up in some books from the library about how I do this, right? So you have this long work period in which there's a ton of structure. At the micro level, each of these works has a very specific procedure that you follow, but that's paired with a lot of freedom at the macro level, right? So which of these works I'm going to do in which order and for how long, that's what I have a lot of choice about. Within the work, the structure of the expectation and the procedure for how to complete it has been presented very carefully so that I can practice with precision. And what are the benefits of that level of choice? Why not go math class, first period, ELA, second period, and do all those same things? What's the benefit of the choice? A massive reduction in willpower battles. Ah. So by giving kids a lot more freedom about time and also space, Ryan, this is the first thing that, that shocks people when they see a Montessori classroom. You come in and there's, this kid's laying on the floor with a rug in front of them. These two kids are sitting at a table. This kid's standing at the bookshelf, right? There's a tremendous amount of physical freedom in the classroom. And by giving kids freedom of movement and a lot of freedom about how they use their time, you massively reduce the willpower battle, right? And engage their will in terms of, uh, now I really, I chose to do this work at this time, right? I had agency in what work I do when. Now, you and I both know that even in the best scenarios, there's still a lot of structure that goes into that and there's kids that need extra guidance. So I'm not implying that every day is a fairyland of perfectly self-assigned independent work. But when it works, it really works. And people come into our rooms and see 21, 3, and 4, and 5-year-olds each doing a separate work with a quiet hum of activity. And, and it just takes their breath away because they just didn't think young children could do that. So you've got that three-hour block in the morning. Then what's after that? We have a fabulous music program here, as I'm sure you could imagine. So for our listeners, Bob ran a rock band when he worked at our school that was absolutely amazing. And a bunch of 6th and 7th and eventually 8th graders playing for sold out concerts in New York City occasionally. And is there a rock band included in that or have you chosen other forms? We don't yet have a rock band. We have a wonderful, we call it the first conversational chorale of Memphis and it's a solfege choir and we do a lot of African-American spirituals and other folk music from around the world. But we also have a new Piano Lab program. And maybe before the end of the podcast, I'll share some exciting growth news with you. Nice. A little teaser. Yeah. So we have a wonderful music program. Another huge feature of our school from the beginning is our gardening and permaculture program, right? So this is very much in the spirit of from the hand to the mind, right? Montessori was a big believer in empowering children with a sense of responsibility. And what better way to do that than to actually grow and nurture life? And then you harvest the food that you grow, you learn to cook it, you feed it to your friends, you bring it home to your family. So we have kids, you know, growing and cooking collard, you know, greens here. We have kids, you know, we made some chutney with some tomatoes we grew. We grow fazinia flowers that they then do flower arranging to decorate their own classrooms. So there's a real sense of the whole cycle. And then they, they compost some of their leftovers from school breakfast and lunch 
that they then, you know, make into compost that they then put in the soil in the school garden. So there's a whole kind of circle of life aspect. And so we've done gardening here from the beginning. Speaking of which, talk a little bit more about what most schools have outside the school, if they're lucky, is a playground with a bunch of swing sets and maybe some baseball fields, basketball courts. That's not what I saw when I visited your school a few years ago. No, so, and you'll appreciate this on multiple levels because when we first came here, we were really lucky that this school building, it's shaped like a big horse. So for your listeners, you can kind of visualize it. It's shaped like a big horseshoe. And in the middle, there's this huge tree-filled space but unfortunately, for district's compliance reasons, they never let the old school that was here really use it. It was kind of this showpiece. But we turned it into what we call the Adventure Playground. And it's, you know, from a compliance standpoint, it's been a real borderline experience over the years. A little like Action Park in New Jersey. <laughs> yes. I mean, essentially. So we drove around the neighborhood and picked up a bunch of tires that were just thrown in abandoned lots. And we used those to build a huge tire climbing wall. We went and got a dump truck full of gravel and dirt and got a bunch of railroad ties and made a giant digging pit and, you know, and put a bunch of, you know, pots and pans in there. Some of the tires the kids have disassembled off the climbing wall and carried them up the hill and rolled them down the hill with the sticks and hilarity ensues. <laughs> we used a bunch of pallets that we found to deconstruct and build little pallet sheds. We have some tree houses we put in there. So all this being said, we do have what we call the plastic playground on the other side of the building, but no one wants the plastic playground. They want the adventure playground. And every day, kids go home from Libertas filthy. <laughs> I'm sure parents appreciate that. Oh, yeah. The kids have a big smile on them. This is like one of the number one things we have to say in the parent orientation. Your kids are going to get dirty here, but they're going to love it. Beyond just having fun, I'm sure there's a reason for what sounds like a junkyard the way you describe it. Um, <laughs> but it, it seems a little more like free range, maybe taking a page from the free range parenting book. Is that more or less correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the adventure playground here basically looks like my backyard, including the goats and the chickens that we keep at the school that kids can, you know, they feed the chickens, you know, they collect the eggs. You know, we even had a beehive here for a while. That was one concession I made. We, we don't have operate the beehive anymore. We did have the beehive, the chickens, you know, the goats. I had the state commissioner of education here a couple of years ago, and one of our kids taught her to milk the school goat, right? So yeah, I mean, there's absolutely, there's very much certainly a, a, you know, a experiential science, you know, education application. But in addition, I mean, a lot of what I'm trying to get at, Ryan, is that, you know, a lot of people, we talk about, you know, social emotional learning as a sort of like set of like didactic lessons and objectives. But I think one of the beautiful things about Montessori is the incredible way that a you know, spirit of community, care of environment, care of self, you know, virtues like responsibility and trustworthiness are built into the functioning of the classroom and the school environment themselves, right? You're sort of enact, you know, in a Montessori classroom, you have a little rug that you roll out and you do all your work on. And it's deliberate because it, it, other people learn to work around, walk around your rug. And so, and they have to walk back and forth across the classroom. And we deliberately put the materials in different places around the room so that you have to practice not interfering with other people as you go, right? So those are some of the subtle, brilliant ways that Montessori sort of built in. You'd sort of, what I would call character and virtue development, and other people would call sort of social emotional learning lessons into the academic experience. So your school, and I've been there, so I can say this with confidence, it is as different from a typical either urban charter school or just any school as you're describing. Your kids leave you after what, fourth, fifth grade? Fifth grade right now, yeah. Fifth grade. And how many classes do you have who have 
graduated your school at this point? This will be our fifth. Okay. How do they do when they go off to normal schools? So there's two answers to that. And, and you won't be surprised. This is a, we get this question all the time. Parents are like, wait a second, how in the world is my gonna kid going to go and sit in a desk all the time and, you know, turn in papers and do the rest of it? And so, I mean, a couple answers to that. First, we actually find that over the course of five, six, seven or more years here, because we have a lot of some kids that even start with us at three years old, right? The level of responsibility that you have to take for your work is something that even in a different context does carry over to a certain extent. On the other hand, Ryan, and you know, I, I do want to add this for your folks, we have over the last couple of years made some adjustments to help with that bridge as well. So when kids, a little bit in fourth grade and even more so in fifth grade, we do have another environment that we call the seminar environment. And this is an area that I guess you'd say is an innovation of ours. It doesn't, it's not going to sound that innovative to you, but to a Montessorian, they would say, oh, well, you're not doing Montessori. And I'd say, if Maria Montessori were teaching our kids in our context today, this is exactly what she would have done. So our kids do have about an hour a day where they spend in a conventionally organized classroom environment. So they are used to sitting in a row in a desk, you know, completing a do now and some of the other more typical kinds of experiences that they might need to have in middle school. So I think the answer is kind of a both end. The last part of the answer, though, is a little disappointing, which is that because of the availability of schools in Memphis, particularly at the middle level, there are really not a lot of high-performing middle school options for our kids. And so right now, just like you were doing years for years at Team Academy before you had NCA, we had to help kids find middle schools to go to. And right now, our kids go to literally about 18 different middle schools because a lot of the kids go to the neighborhood middle schools, but both of the zoned enrollment, all three of the zoned enrollment neighborhood middle schools in our area are extremely low performing schools. There's not one seat in our entire neighborhood that is considered a quality seat for middle school. And so we have a bunch of other charters around town and even some private schools. We help kids get scholarships to just like you did back in the day so that kids could try to find the best option for them. So you mentioned teacher prep earlier. That seems like the hardest part in all of this, right? Like yeah. how do you find or you know, create, develop teachers who can do, you know, all these things that you're describing. Yeah. And I don't mean for it to be such a love fest, but another thing that you taught me early on that has really stuck with me is, you know, I've always been very convinced of like what you call like the E.D. Hirsch core knowledge thesis, right? And the importance of background knowledge and vocabulary. And for the record, I think that's been a huge part of our success at our school and cumulative world knowledge um, having a tremendous effect for kids uh, reading scores in particular. All that being said, you were never a critic of knowledge. Your point has always been you need the right people who can do it, right? Because a good curriculum without good teachers to teach it isn't going to be taught well. And you're so right. And my experience here has driven that home. And so when we first started our school, we tried to hire a lot of experienced Montessori teachers. And there were a number of folks we hired who our school would not have started or survived without them. And so there are people who have been private school Montessori teachers who absolutely can make the leap and be successful in public schools. But over time, Ryan, we really shifted away from that strategy because we also had some people, when you are accustomed to choosing the kids you are teaching, and make no mistake, there I'm not going to name names, but you can go to Montessori conferences where there are sessions titled things like, how to choose the right kids for your school community. Right. And it's just like it's so profoundly antithetical to what we're trying to be that even though those of us who come from a, a typical public school background have a, a big journey to undertake to become Montessorians, at the end of the day, people who love the children and want the best for them are going to learn that and be successful. 
more so than a person who they're doing it because they have an image from the cover of a catalog of what a Montessori classroom looks like. So every school has a mission statement, but then you have like unofficial mission statements and slogan, right? I mean, Kip, who has more slogans than Kip, right? But from the beginning, we've always said the children are the mission. And that's why Montessori is not in the name of our school. Well, I mean, the first reason is no one in our community knows what Montessori is. They bring their kids here because we love them and have an environment where they can flourish. So it wouldn't have had any marketing value <laughs> in the niche I'm in. But secondarily, I never want us people to think this is more about proving someone's model right. The model exists to serve the children. That's why Dr. Montessori developed it, not the other way. So instead of buying your building, right, when it comes to teachers, at this point at least, how do you do that? Yep. So Dr. Montessori developed a really profound way of preparing teachers. And for generations, people who complete her method of teaching, they call it transformational, right? They use words like metamorphosis, right? This is the degree to which it's really, you know, transformative for people, forgive the redundancy. And what it is, Ryan, is it's, and we have made adaptations to make it work in a public school environment, but you're talking about a year-long process with literally something like 400-plus hours of hands-on focused teacher preparation where you are learning the lessons in the exact way the children learn them, right? So you have a community of adult learners with an experienced Montessori guide teaching you the lessons in the exact way that you're going to teach them to the children and practicing them in the same way that the children will practice them. This happens like on a weekly basis or how to, I'm, I'm assuming you don't do 10 weeks of upfront training. No, no. Yes. Yeah, so good point. But this was the sort of heritage. This is the way Montessori developed it. I'll give it to you in Latin. Nemo da cord non habit. You cannot give what you do not have. And so, right, if we want the children to have a sense of wonder, the teacher has to have a sense of wonder. So the sort of the, the hushed voice, right, in the beautifully prepared environment and the immaculately cared for materials that you slowly move by hand, right? Like every aspect of the environment that you want to come alive for the children, you have to experience yourself. And so you spend hundreds of hours doing this. And then you also have, you know, hundreds of hours of field experience practicing serving children with coaching and support. Now, historically, I mean, in the best private school environments, you spend a year doing nothingness, but we can't afford to do that in our context. So what we do for the first several years of our school, after it was clear we couldn't just hire private school Montessorians and we wanted to hire people who wanted to work with kids in our context, we used to contract with different Montessori training programs, but it just it didn't work for various reasons we can go into if you want. So we created our own with some different partner organizations. So we now operate Arete Memphis Public Montessori Residency, which is the only dual certified public you get a public school license from the state of Tennessee and you get a nationally accredited Montessori teacher training diploma embedded in an urban public school residency. So it's the only program like this in the country. And you have a five-week intensive summer one where you are spending all day, every day for five weeks doing what we described. And then you have a three to four-week summer two that looks the exact same way. And in the year in between, you're considered a resident or an apprentice during which you're working as a co-teacher in a Montessori classroom and you are getting several hours of additional professional development and guided practice every single week, you know, coaching and observation and the same model of coaching that you would see in any successful college prep school, but with a specific focus on Montessori pedagogy and curriculum. And again, staying anchored in the prepared environment. That's Montessori's vision is it's education is it's the child the guide, and the environment. They exist in a triadic relationship with each other. And so now the teachers coming in, I know you've historically had very experienced teachers. It sounds like 
maybe not so much now? Or are these experienced teachers, but you're sort of layering on the Montessori teaching approach? Yeah, both. More the latter, but both. And part of it, Ryan, is another objective we have is to expand the diversity and representation of the Montessori teaching force. Because most kids in Montessori are middle class kids and therefore disproportionately white. If we want to have, I mean, we're in a majority, Memphis is, a, to use a self-described term, a chocolate city, right? This is a majority black school. And we want to make sure that more people from our community are realizing the economic impact personally, right? And building generational wealth in the family and the community. So not only do we want more prepared Montessori teachers, but we also want more teachers invested in our community, right? And more jobs in our community, both in Libertas, but also the five partner schools that we serve. We're working with schools in Nashville, Chattanooga, Jackson, Tennessee, Atlanta, and Louisville to help create similar communities of practice where we're providing the training, but in a cluster at each of these schools. And so through our training program, we've been able to reduce some of the barriers to access that, because typically you've got to leave your home and quit your job and spend a whole year in another place. And if you have kids or you're a working person, that's completely impossible. So by making this school-based and also hybrid with about two-thirds of the program in person and about one-third online, we've been able to more than double the diversity of the, the people that we're training in our cohorts to create a more diverse and well-prepared public Montessori pipeline. So it sounds like you're having some spillover effects beyond your 500 students. And if all you ever did was educate those 500 kids as well as you are, it'd be an amazing thing. But you mentioned scale earlier or, or expansion, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I think that the success that we have been having at our school is so deeply tied to the close neighborhood connections we have here. I talked a little bit about the beginning about a bunch of the different nonprofit and the local business leaders that we worked with to start our school that continue to be really important partners. And so I think that a lot of people now use this term place-based. And I think our school is really very deeply connected to Fraser and Memphis. And so for instance, we've developed an entire literature-based character education, like supplementary curriculum that takes Montessori principles, but applies it to the specific context of African-American heritage, right? And so we use African-American folk tales, fairy tales, and heroes of history for interactive read-alouds, right? And a whole kind of SEL or character curriculum. And I don't, you couldn't just take that and plop it down into a Vietnamese immigrant community, right? Or a Hispanic migrant worker community or a rural white community in East Tennessee and have it be the same thing. So it's very place-based. So we didn't want to just sort of take what we do and replicate it in different communities, but we said there's absolutely a spine of rigorous and holistic teacher preparation that we can partner with other schools to make sure that they have that core and then they can make the connections to the unique aspects of their local communities. And so that's, we've decided that instead of growing Libertas horizontally as a operator, we will disseminate horizontally through the training program. And so over the next five years, our goal is to double the diversity and triple the number of public Montessori teachers in the Mid-South region, basically the geography I described to you earlier. And we're already 40% of the way there. And, you know, that might not sound like a lot, but 2,500 kids a year will now be able to have public Montessori education that couldn't exist before because they didn't have the prepared teachers. So that's the horizontal. But the really exciting thing that I'm, I can announce to your listeners today, be the first to know, we are on the cusp of launching a vertical expansion in our neighborhood. We already did that a few years ago when we, we started an infant and toddler program. We are the only charter school in Tennessee that has Department of Human Services funded 
free infant and toddler care through our program. But now we're going to expand in the other direction and we're poised to open what I believe will be a national exemplar of Montessori education at the middle school level. Oh, wow. And Montessori is usually associated with elementary school, right? Yeah. Early childhood and elementary is really where she did most of her work. So is there a model for this or are you going to be innovating all the way up? Yeah. Basically, there's one essay that Montessori wrote and an appendix to another book she wrote where she kind of, it's a very lengthy and substantive essay. And, you know, she was a research scientist. She was a medical doctor. And so, you know, all of her work was based on observation of the physical and mental and moral developmental characteristics of children as they age, right? But so she did a limited amount of work with adolescents. And she said, if I were to start a school for adolescents, here are the things that I'd really be thinking about. And I would consider the following options. So it is absolutely different because you have to understand that at the early childhood and elementary level, there is a literally, a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of sort of handbook from Montessori herself, right, adapted by people of the last century. There is a blueprint and that does not exist at the adolescent level. There are a small handful of, of Montessori adolescent programs around the country, and they look quite a bit different from each other for this reason. But I think that, you know, building on what has worked at our school and kind of channeling her vision, we're going to be doing some, I think, exciting things. Well, that's amazing. And you heard it here first, folks. Let's switch gears a bit. You talked about your own kids. You have five, right? And they don't go to a Montessori school. They are homeschooled right? Yeah. Presumably with some Montessori features to it. Yes. But a recent Washington Post article reported that homeschooling is America's fastest growing form of education and has increased by over 50% in the last six years. And this is true, apparently, across all demographics, political, geographical lines. It's not just one group that's doing this. Yeah. And currently, over one in 10 kids in America are homeschooled. You and your wife, Sarah, have been homeschooling since before it was cool. So tell us a little bit about like why you decided to do that. Well, my wife was herself homeschooled for part of her upbringing. My wife's father and mother started a little church in New York City serving a largely immigrant and poor. They, have a, they run a small multiracial church in New York City. And at the time in the 80s when, you know, in the early 80s, when she and I were both young kids in New York, the public schools were such that a lot of families didn't feel comfortable there. And so her family homeschooled her. But then she, she my wife, she's a brilliant woman. She got a fully funded scholarship to one of the most elite private high schools in New York City, the Brearley School, which I'm sure some of your listeners will know. It's an incredible the high achieving, you know, elite. But it was a really interesting experience for her because my wife was going to school, with, you know, these girls, dads were and moms were, you know high-powered Wall Street executives and lawyers and, and the rest of it, you know? And so she was this kind of, I mean, almost working-class person from an income standpoint in a completely different cultural environment, but it had this, she was catapulted right into this sort of like academic stratosphere. You know, my wife went on and, you know, she was studying for a PhD at the University of Chicago, you know, so she had this really elite education. She was working at a re as a researcher in New York City, you know, at a think tank, you know, when I was working with you there in Newark. But then when we finally had our kids, you know, it was originally her intention to stay in academia. But she, you know, when our first child was born, my wife loves learning. And, you know, she, you know, as any mom wants to do, she wants to help her kids start learning. And the more she read and the more she learned, she was enjoying teaching it. And then my wife's a 19th century historian. She learned about Maria Montessori and the sort of creation of that model at the end of the 19th century and the, and the sort of advent of dissemination in the early 20th. And she started experimenting with Montessori education at home. And she was like, we got to check this thing out. And so that's when we started visiting different Montessori schools. And 
sort of fell in love with the idea. And, and actually, for the record, if she listens to this, I always have to remind her, my, it was my wife's idea to start labor class. And she told me to do it. And so whenever we have a particularly difficult day and she's rolling her eyes, I said, well, honey, remember, it was your idea. Oh, I'm sure that works really well. Yeah. So, so really the short answer, the personal front is my wife loves learning so much that homeschooling, I mean, so she is working with one kid on studying geometry and working on AP Latin and helping this one learn to decode and this one to do research on this ancient Mesopotamia and this one to do a dissection of a frog, you know, and if you love learning, it's just an amazing atmosphere that you can create as a family culture. And so it sounds like she has developed the curriculum basically from scratch. Is that right? Yes. But I do want to say a couple of things about that. First, there are tons of great, I mean, my wife being a 19th century historian, there's a lot of vintage resources because those of your listeners who don't know about what American public education looked like in the 19th century, we essentially had a one-room schoolhouse system in which teachers had to be prepared much like Montessorians today. You actually had to know a ton of content across many grade levels and a lot about child development because you might be teaching a room with kids from age six to age 14. And so Montessori teachers today teaching, you know, three years of students and, you know, what we would call four or five areas of content still, you know, the one room schoolhouse teacher of the 19th century was doing that and more. And so there's a lot of great vintage resources. But I think another reason, Ryan, that you're seeing so much growth in the homeschooling sector is you know, over the last decade, you've seen the emergence of tons of great resource shares, homeschool co-ops, cottage schools, different methods that allow you to do this without feeling completely on your own. I think one of the big questions people have about homeschooling is where do kids get the sort of socialization and some of the social skills you develop, you know, on the playground at your school or in the hallways or wherever, just even the little mini interactions that you have. And then also, you know, everything from group work and everything else growing up in a regular, you know, going to a public school or private school. How do you guys account for that? Yeah, well, the first way is have a lot of kids because then you've got built-in socialization. Okay, that's the easy one. Homeschooling families, because of the freedom and the flexibility you have in your schedule, are able to, I mean, we have a homeschool association where we're doing field trips all the time and we have a homeschool band where the kids play together in a homeschool choir. You know, we do science projects together. My wife teaches Latin for a bunch of homeschool kids. There's another mom who used to be a high school math teacher and she does you know math workshops for a bunch of kids in our group so this is not the sort of like isolated lonely homeschool world of maybe 20 years ago or 30 plus years ago and my wife and i when she you know i was going to public school but when she was here by herself with a workbook and a vhs you know but there's a lot of collaboration opportunities now that help with that and so i think families needn't fear that those won't be there for them that makes sense and i imagine now with education savings accounts popping up and legislation supporting those popping up around the country there will be more of an ecosystem even than there is now is that what you would predict yeah i think you're right i mean because the tail wags the dog right and the money in the education sector you know public funding being sort of bundled and sort of units so you know purple units for schools have sort of kept that resource locked up and i'm sure your listeners have different views about it but i do think like the esa that's being created in tennessee it is sort of somewhat unbundleable where you can use different parts of it for different kinds of programs and so i, I do think that we'll see more emergence of that one other thing i want to say though is that one way my own kids get a lot of socialization is by being active at libertas i mean a couple of my kids have had have gone to school here at different points for different programs my kids are avid volunteers here and so this is really a family project, you know, as much as anything. And I encourage any homeschool families or prospective homeschooling families thinking about how can you use the freedom and flexibility you get as a homeschooler to make sure your kids are still growing up around people who are different from you 
and they can see themselves as responsible contributors to their community. That's the, a real upside of it. So one question I have for you, knowing that you're an avid reader, is what are you reading right now? What's the best book you've read in the last year? Hmm. Well, on this topic, you know, I will say, I don't know if many of your readers know John Taylor Gatto, G-A-T-T-O. You know, the Underground History of American Education is, he's New York State Teacher of the Year about 25 years ago. He was like the Rafe Esquith of his day, Ryan. But he went on to be kind of a, uh, you might be shocked that I'm saying this because he became a pretty like radical sort of countercultural critic of what he called sort of the hidden curriculum of compulsory education, right? So he was, whether you consider him sort of a critical theory radical or whether you consider him kind of a libertarian, I guess, you know, but, you know, he was really concerned. The arguments that people would make about homeschooling, he flips them on their head, right? He says, what kind of actually fundamentally antisocial lessons do children pick up attending institutional schools that have destructive cultures or cultures that undermine your sense of agency and ownership in education, right? And so I think John Taylor and then another guy, Ivan Illich, I-L-L-I-C-H, he was another kind of late 20th century social critic who wrote a lot about, he has this amazing book, Tools for Conviviality. His view was we have agency around how we use new technology. So he was, a, I think, by most accounts, a fairly left-leaning critic, but who was very much for the kind of voucher or ESA model of education you're talking about, precisely because he wanted to unlock sectors of society that would give kids a greater sense that school isn't just a place you have to go to until you don't go anymore. He wanted to bring back a kind of apprenticeship model where kids er much earlier on could get a sense of agency and sort of end directedness in their educational journey. So I think, I'd say Illich and Gatto are two people that if you want some radical ideas about not unschooling, but ways that institutional schooling could better support the project of human flourishing, you, you can't go wrong reading either of those guys. But buckle your seatbelt because you're in for a ride. All right. So Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Where can people go to find out more about you or about Libertas School of Memphis? Yeah, LibertasMemphis.org, L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S, like, like liberty, but... LibertasMemphis.org or at Libertas901. That's our area code here at Memphis901 on Instagram. Both would be great ways to sort of see what it looks like here and to read more about what we're doing. We'd love to have you come and visit. We want to see more human-centered education for human flourishing across the country and would love to partner with any of your listeners on how to do that. All right. Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you, my friend. And if there's two seconds left on this recording, I don't know if you'll fit it in or not, but I, I just have to say to any of your listeners, Ryan, I learned so much from working for you. And Libertas wouldn't be here if it weren't for the opportunity you gave me and what you taught me about loving kids and creating an atmosphere of, of elite professionals who believe in what kids can do. So thank you, Ryan, for everything you did for my career and for helping to make Libertas possible. I appreciate that as well. And we wouldn't be where we are if we hadn't had you running operations and helping us figure out how to put up more schools for more kids. So very much appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Bob. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at, at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.